I'd like to read one more poem. I think Susan Wilkins probably sent... Did you send in Pons? Is she here? Yeah, they're here. Did you send that one in? By Mary Oliver, the Pons? Oh, and who sent in the Pons? Oh, somebody did. <laughs> anyway, this is a poem by Mary Oliver. Every year the lilies are so perfect I can hardly believe their lapped light crowding the black midsummer ponds. Nobody could count all of them. The muskrats swimming among the pads and the grasses can reach out their muscular arms and touch only so many. They are that rife and wild. But what in this world is perfect? I bend closer to see how this one is clearly lopsided and that one wears an orange blight and this one is a glossy cheek half nibbled away and that one is slumped purse full of its own unstoppable decay. Still, what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I am looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe that the imperfections are nothing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sun, of each flawed blossom rising and fading. And I do. So this is our last night we'll be spending with Mudita, appreciative joy, at least in terms of our class. Hopefully it's alive and well in us and we'll be manifesting in all kinds of subtle and obvious ways forever and ever, increasing, blossoming. So this is uh, a joy. And there's, uh, I think uh, Nora sent in a couple questions about this, like understanding the relationship between mudita and what in Pali we call sukha. Sukha is the opposite, of course, of dukkha. So a happiness, an ease, a joy, and really understanding the movement of mudita and joy as a feedback mechanism or as a, you know, an engine of happiness. So mudita is the, in a way, it's the intention to appreciate what's beautiful, or even more generally, just to appreciate the moment. In a a way, it's even the view that appreciation is appropriate. Because, you know, a lot of times we move through life and it just doesn't seem appropriate to be appreciating anything. I'm going to read a little bit later from the article that Susan Rosen sent that I passed on to everybody today. If you haven't opened up your email, you'll see it there if you're on the email list an article from The Sun magazine, I think it was. But anyway, he has this, I think it's a, he has this term where he's calling this tendency in our culture pop nihilism. You know, how pervasive this tendency to be dismal, to be dark, to feel like, you know, it's bad, life is bad. And so... We, we can cultivate, we can find this intention in the mind 
and cultivate it by recognizing it over and over again that actually there already in the mind is this capacity or this intention to recognize what's beautiful, to delight in what's beautiful, to appreciate what's beautiful. And that is a cause for happiness, for sukha. And then the sukha affects the view. Like when we feel happy, when we actually, when we let joy touch the heart, it changes our view. We feel more content. There's less rigidity, less narrowness in the mind. And it's just easier to appreciate the moment and what's being seen or felt or seen or thought in the moment. It's just so much easier to appreciate things when we're not feeling stepped on or heavy. I mean, even just, I'm sure you've noticed when you've got a lot of physical pain in your posture, it's not easy to do mudita, is it? The pain... You know, and then, of course, taking the pain personally, getting attached, identified with the pain, the physical ache in the back or the pain in the knee, the restlessness, the dullness, whatever the pain might be. The identification to that, it like reinforces a particular narrow view and a view that tends to turn always back and back and back again to, toward self-drama. But when we're feeling happy, relaxed, light, then it's very easy for the mind to appreciate things. Even things we would normally never kind of catch our attention, but we can just start appreciating them when we're happy. Everything becomes delightful. So this is that feedback mechanism between mudita and joy or sukha. So sukha allows the blossoming of mudita, this sort of recognition, this capacity, this inherent capacity to appreciate the moment, to appreciate whatever is being experienced in the moment, which sets emotion joy, which makes it easier to appreciate whatever is arising in the moment, and on and on like this. And that's that blossoming, that opening to what you know, we say is immeasurable or boundless, not limited. So joy isn't limited. There is no end. It doesn't run out. And this is important that, uh, you know, uh, just opening the mind beyond a sense of scarcity I don't think I've read this yet, but anyway, there's this poem by Rumi. Lord, the air smells good today. Straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of God, a grace like new clothes thrown across the gardens. Free medicine for everybody. Face to face with the lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. I was listening and I sent a link to this talk a couple of weeks ago. I was listening to Sally Armstrong's talk, Sally Chloe Armstrong. She's the partner of Guy Armstrong, both teachers at Spirit Rock, wonderful Dharma couple. And uh, she gave a talk on Mudita a couple of years ago and I was listening to it. And she, I don't know if she came up with this or, but I mean, it just makes so much sense that 
as useful as the Four Noble Truths are in terms of directing our attention, every once in a while, it's probably really useful for us to reframe the Four Noble Truths. Just, it's really the same thing, but just putting it in the other direction. So instead of there is dukkha, we say there is sukha, there is joy, there is happiness. Joy has a cause. Yeah, instead of dukkha has a cause, we say joy has a cause, namely letting go or non-grasping or letting things be. This joy should be fully, completely realized. We should, as one of the discourses of the Buddha says, you know, we should fully, completely set it in motion, set it free. Like uh, Havis, I think I mentioned last week, that line, tripping over joy. And then the last truth, of course, and there's a path to this complete embodiment of joy, complete expression of joy and happiness. Now I'll read from that article that Susan sent. Secrets of Pronoria. Is that how you say it, George? Pronia? Yeah, I've never heard that word before. So is it just a Greek word or is it also used in English? Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> yeah, so it means providence in English. In English, yeah. And what was the other definition you said? Uh, proactive caring. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, great. And uh, it's just a fun article, so I recommend that you read it. And... Uh, He's just talking about appreciative joy, but from a different angle, not, not Buddhist angle at all. And so anyway, and there's just a section here I want to read in this particular section of the article. It's called, Evil is Boring. When an old tree in the rainforest dies and topples over, it takes a long time to decompose. As it does, it becomes host to new saplings that use the decaying log for nourishment. Picture yourself sitting in the forest gazing upon this scene. How would you describe it? Would you dwell in the putrefaction of the fallen tree while ignoring the fresh life sprouting out of it? If you did, you'd be imitating the perspective of many modern storytellers, especially the journalists, novelists, and filmmakers and producers of TV dramas. They devotely believe that tales of affliction and mayhem and corruption and tragedy are inherently more interesting than tales of triumph and liberation and pleasures and ingenuity. Using the machinery of the media and entertainment industries, they relentlessly propagate this dogma. It's not sufficiently profound or well thought out to be, co- to, to be called nihilism. Pop nihilism is more a more accurate term. The mass audience is the victim of this inane machine that makes the Nazi Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda look like a child's backyard puppet show. At the Beauty and Truth Laboratory, which is this organization he's established, we believe that stories about the rot are not inherently more captivating than stories about the splendor. On the contrary, given how predictable and omnipresent the former have become, they are actually quite dull. Obsessing on evil is boring. Rousing fear is hecknine shtick. 
Wallowing in despair is a bad habit. Indulging in cynicism is akin to committing a a copycat crime. And the subtitle of the article is How the World is Conspiring to Shower You with Blessings. Isn't that a nice attitude? Now imagine if we lived with that attitude, you know, just went through the day. Like somehow, just like it's so, you know, we feel so justified thinking at times, maybe a lot of the time, that the world is conspiring, you know, to F-U-C-K with our mind. I mean, doesn't it feel that way? It's like, like perfectly, the world is perfectly designed to screw with our mind. All the different ways, all the different things that have happened. Oh, sure, you know, this has happened, that, and then now this happens. You know, like, thank you, God. And we really feel like, uh, and it's just that attitude feels so appropriate, like that it masquerades as some kind of wisdom, despair, helplessness, resignation, anger. It just feels appropriate in life. And it's not that it's not appropriate. It's just way, it seems, for most of us, most of the time, way out of balance. And that's what we can use in our small group discussions in a few minutes. You know, I think it would be really useful, basically like a confession, to talk about each of us in our own way, like how our mind is way out of balance. Like what's in the way of tripping over joy? Day, moment by moment, just today, like what was in the way today? What kept us relatively grim, heavy, sober, serious, tight, anxious? What were all the excuses for all of that today? You know, was it physical pain? And then we can talk about what what kind of attitude or what kind of view about the world arises conditioned by physical pain, let's say backache or migraines or something? Or was it that we didn't feel like we had enough? And and Sharon, I think, does a really nice job in her book kind of going through, she, she organizes it in terms of seven things. I mentioned these at the very end of last week's meeting. Judging, comparing, prejudice, demeaning, Envy, avarice, boredom. But, you know, we could come up with our own list of sort of ways of categorizing patterns of our mind where it feels so appropriate not to let any joy in, not to let joy, happiness, lightness, beauty touch the heart. It just seems like it's out of place or inappropriate to see to recognize that. And it's, in a way, you know, we, I think we get, uh, we get so comfortable with our narrow view. And maybe that is the fundamental attachment, you know, more than anything, like being attached to life, being attached to physical health, being attached to the sense of self even, is is this, you know, in a more direct way, what we're attached to is the particular shape of our view, the particular narrowness 
tightness of our view. You know, life sucks. Life is hard. And uh, we become dependent not on the view itself, but we're dependent on the view not being challenged. It's like it's our ground. It may not be pretty ground. It may not be pleasant ground, but it's in a sense, it's our world. It's our ground nonetheless. So we get really attached to our stingy, narrow, um, not enough, not having enough life. In a particular section in Sharon's book on demeaning, this tendency that comes out of that basic stinginess to, it's basically we're, def, uh, we're defending this narrow, tight point of view. So that means we have to immediately diminish anything that looks beautiful, anything that's pretty, beautiful, uh, um, happy, any happiness around us. It has to be diminished. It doesn't matter. Carol Wilson once told a funny thing about, uh, if you don't know, Carol Wilson is one of the long-time teachers at IMS. She's lived at IMS in Massachusetts for a long time and started out with Steve Armstrong and Guy Armstrong as staff at, at IMS in the mid-70s when it first opened up. A number of our current senior teachers were originally just staff people at the center when it first opened. And... Uh, I think while she was staff, but maybe she had just become a teacher, one of the two of the uh, staff people at the center had fallen in love. And Sharon was, or uh, Carol rather, was walking with somebody uh, outside and saw the two in the, you know, in the first flush of love, holding hands, walking down. And Sharon turns to the person she was walking with. It will never last. <laughs> You know, and probably she was right. I mean, relationships, for sure, generally don't last forever. How could they? You know, so, but it's just interesting, that attitude, like, immediately we pick up, like, oh, it's just, it's just what it is. You know, it's just, we're diminishing happiness. It's like, it's not important because it's going to be temporary. It's not real because it's temporary. I feel that way a lot about nice days. I don't know if other people do this, but... You know, it'll be a really nice day, but, you know, I know it's going to be over in five hours. And it's like, I don't want to appreciate it. And this is like, uh, happens in Buddhist practice where we overcompensate for having sort of a, a sense of impermanence, that things are changing. It's like we overcompensate by not appreciating anything. Like, why bother enjoying the food? Because the meal's going to be over I mean, relatively speaking, it's going to be over in the blink of an eye. So why bother showing up and really tasting the food, feeling the body being fed, or any pleasant moment? And the mind starts to get addicted to negativity. And then, it, and then because of the addiction, the identification, it has to work really hard at dismissing happiness, our own and others, because it threatens the view that nothing matters. So this is that nihilism that the article refers to. 
So I'll just read a little bit from Sharon's chapter. She has a lot of interesting things. So if you haven't read it, I recommend reading these, what she has to say about these different qualities. We might be resentful of someone who has a great deal of faith or love, someone who can feel basically at ease even when they are encountering hard times or who can exhibit kindness in the face of difficulty. Besides feeling as if we might not be able to have as much faith or love because they've already got it all, we might also suffer by feeling that we fall short by comparison and want to diminish them so that they're more like us. Does that sound familiar? It's like um, if somebody is really open and alive and we're not so open and alive in that moment, it's like threatening to us. So we have to diminish, like they must be naive or they're sort of Pollyannish or something like that, that lightness that we're seeing in them. It's not really real. It's not based on the facts on the ground. When we view reality in that way, the more someone else has, the less we have. Then certainly it it is easy to feel the threat of deprivation, to become resentful and embittered and to feel the need to demean others. When we feel that there is a fixed or static amount of good things in life, we must constantly compete for them. When we have no concept of the ability of good qualities to flower and replenish themselves, we are all impoverished. And this is, she goes on from here to talk about sharing the merit. And we talked briefly about it at the very end last week. That the one of the nice things about this tradition in Theravada Buddhism of reflecting on our goodness and then happily sharing it with others, the blessings of our lives, and then sharing it with others, is it it forces us to recognize this exponential quality of joy and goodness. How the remembering of our goodness and the giving away of our goodness actually leads that for leads to there being more goodness in the heart in the moment. It's like we recognize directly that it doesn't run out. That it just, there's just more. It's like that uh, parable in the Bible of the 40 loaves, you know, and feeding all those people. There's something about the beauty of the heart and mind, the goodness of the heart and mind, that when it's recognized, when it's acknowledged, when it's appreciated, it just grows. There is no end to it. And this really helps us to overcome, uh, you know, that this tendency towards nihilism. It doesn't matter. There isn't any happiness. It's just about getting by, just getting to the end, just making it through. At the very end, she at this section where she's talking about sharing the merit, in the traditional phrase, just uh, there's several examples of it in our chant book, which you can go to the website, to the page on resources. You can download the PDF if you want it. And there are several places, several versions of sharing the merit in our chant book, or you can just Google it, of course. But in the chapter here, Sharon has a very short, simple version of it. May the merit of this action be shared with by all beings everywhere so that they may come to the end of suffering. So every time you do something nice, you let somebody in on the freeway. And you can just say that. May the merit of this action be shared by all beings everywhere so that they may come to the end of suffering. I mean, what a nice thought. 
if that doesn't make us feel good, I mean, that is such an empowering thought that somehow this action is going to support the alleviation of suffering for all beings. And, you know, we can even sort of increase the power of it, you know, like uh, in the Buddhist tradition, the Theravada tradition, some of you know about Agulimala, famous character who was a, an assassin who had killed 999 people, according to the legend, before the Buddha intervened and Agulimala became a disciple of the Buddha and eventually a fully enlightened disciple of the Buddha, monk. Um, and he was about to kill his mom and that's when the Buddha intervened. But... Uh, he was having, once he became a monk and started his practice, he was having a really hard time because whenever he went to town to collect alms, food for his day, of course, the people were frightened and angry and they didn't really trust the fact that he'd become a Buddhist monk. You know, they remembered him as, as a sort of mass murderer. So they'd throw things at him and swear at him and, you know, beat him up and stuff. And um, at some point, forget exactly the, the specifics of the story, but a woman was having trouble with her childbirth, uh, with birthing her child. And uh, Agulimala really wanted to help, but the monks were prohibited from sort of, uh, sort of doing anything that might look like magic. But the Buddha uh, said that, uh, gave Agulimala a way to sort of bless to sort of send out his good wish to this woman. And then since that time, this uh, particular sutta and the image of Agulimala has been sort of the patron saint in Buddhist terms, you know, I don't know what you'd call it, but like a protection for women when they're giving birth. And so what he said is, uh, since becoming a monk, I have not engaged in any harmful activities. By the power of this, by the power of my not causing harm to others since having become a monk. You know, may the power of this, may the blessing of this somehow make your childbirth easeful. Something like that. And so we can do this too. This is basically a form of sharing the merit. We can just reflect on anything. Let's say, you know, you've been in a committed relationship for 20 years and you haven't committed adultery. And you just say, I mean, it's easy to commit adultery for most people, right? So you say, by the power of the integrity of my relationship with my partner, may this goodness be the cause for your happiness, support you in your, you know, whatever, whatever you want to bless, any person or all beings without exception. I mean, think about how many things we can tune into, beautiful aspects of our life, Terrible things we've avoided doing. You know, beautiful things we have done. By the power of all this, may everybody in this room be blessed. Realize real happiness in this life. I mean, that feels good. That feels good. You know, by all of the wholesome merit that has arisen through my being part of what's happened at Common Ground. You know, may all of us touch real happiness, unshakable happiness in our lives. I mean, that just makes me happy. If there's no diminishing of happiness in that. And this is really how we turn the corner. We have to 
it's not like we we can rely on anybody else. We have to find that force of good in our own lives, in our own heart. We have to see it and we have to set it free. And it's really just a matter of what we attend to. I mean, so much of this path that the Buddha lays out is about what we pay attention to. You know, habitually, what are we paying attention to? I remember once uh, I was in a retreat with a beautiful teacher and he said something like that at the end, you know, just sort of blessing people. And I felt really touched by it. And I was talking to somebody later <laughs> and he, he told me, oh, they all do that. You know, that's just that's just a habit that these, you know, monks or the, oh, this person actually wasn't a monk, uh, that they do at the end of their retreats. You know, they say this sort of basic recitation of sharing the blessings. and uh, But my actual experience, you know, if I trust that, was it felt really good. I felt like I was receiving some continuity, some power, some, you know, flow. And we have to trust our experience, not this sort of cynical, you know, like, I know life is bad, so I don't care what you tell me. You know, because we've paid attention to certain things and we haven't paid attention to other things. So let's share that in our small groups tonight. And again, that list that Sharon mentions, um, you know, looking like at the force of just physical and emotional pain, the implications of that and how it skews our view or the tendency to be critical and judgmental, the tendency to diminish the tendency to compare ourselves. You know, I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm the same as. Envy, stinginess, even boredom, you know, just being, you know, disconnected, it's not important. All of these things get in the way of being touched, seeing joy, appreciating joy, feeling enlivened by joy. So why don't you just take a a minute of silence just to reflect on what you might like to share in the group. And of course, anything that you've been recognizing in your practice, of course, is relevant to share in your small groups. Just really anything goes that seems relevant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate